0: Turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 39. Genesis 39, and we uh, will read the whole chapter uh, if you are able. Uh, Please stand as we read God's Word together. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my, lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you bought, um, brought among us... Came in to me to laugh at me, and as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with him and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit that You would be at work in and through and by these words in our own hearts and lives. Use them to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Modern uh, Christianity, the modern... Christian evangelical world, uh, for the most part, wants to tell you that if you just have enough faith, if you just believe right, if you just do the right things, if you have enough trust in God, then um, God will overwhelmingly bless you, shower you with earthly blessings. I've even heard... Almost those exact words uh, come um, from the lips of uh, someone at an Athens High Baccalaureate service. Uh, that's the the message of so much of modern Christianity, of the Western world. It's the teaching that's so uh, prevalent in the world today that you really can have your best life now and we get to decide that my best life looks like all my debts paid, brand spanking new car, a bigger house, a little bit better this, a little bit more obedient children. We're told that you can have all of those things. Or maybe, maybe you think to yourself, you know, maybe that's not your issue. Maybe instead you think, well, what I really want is to be uh, in the center of God's will. And then you start to ask yourself, well, how do I know if that's where I am? How do I know what the center of God's will is? And how do I know whether I'm in it? How do I know? How can I decide? How can I determine? Well, we end up using our context, our situation, our scenario, the whatever's going on around us. We let our physical surroundings Decide for us determine whether or not we really are currently in the center of God's will or what that even looks like. Go tell Joseph that you can have your best life now. Go tell Joseph that, that if you just had enough faith, I mean, if you just trusted God just a little bit more, then everything would go perfectly for you. You know, if you trusted God enough, then your brothers wouldn't have sold you as a slave to those Ishmaelites. Or, you know, Joseph, if you really were in the center of God's will, I don't think you would be in prison. I don't think prison is, is what God wants for you. I don't think that's the best thing that God has for you. Modern Western, The modern Western Christian message has nothing to say for Joseph. Because you notice as the chapter begins, it begins verse 1 with with almost a, a repetition of the very last verse of chapter 37. It reminds us, Moses inspired by the Holy Spirit, reminds us all over again that Joseph is in Egypt in the house of Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's army. That's where chapter 37 ended. And then we had this brief hiatus in the life of Judah in chapter 38. And so we come back, the scene sort of resets back to Joseph. And Moses reminds us, I remember where you were. We're back at Joseph now. And so thirty-nine, one and, and the last verse of 37 are almost exactly the same. This passage sets up basically as four different scenes. As if four scenes of one play. And in the first, Potiphar entrusts Joseph. His context, his situation, his setting, the fact that he's a slave in Egypt, that should tell us that something is wrong. His circumstances sort of tell us something's not right. We think Joseph's done something wrong. Joseph's being punished for something. Surely, the fact that his brothers would sell him as a slave to his distant relatives who would then sell him to Potiphar down in Egypt, surely Joseph's doing something wrong. But the Bible tells us actually the exact opposite. It tells us the exact opposite is true in Joseph's life because twice we're told right off the bat in verse 2 and again in verse 3 that God is with Joseph. In fact, notice okay, I've done this before, you'll hear this again. Generally speaking, when your English Bibles use Lord in all capital letters, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, uh, that's the personal covenant name of God. And it's actually not used that many times in Joseph's account, the next uh, 13, 12, whatever chapters. It's actually not used that many times. It's used numerous times in this chapter alone. And we're told that the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of Israel is with Joseph. Even down in Egypt. Even as a slave. Even in the home of Pharaoh's army commander. But don't miss the implications of verse 1. It tells you where Joseph is. But it also tells you where Joseph isn't. He's not among God's people. He's in a foreign land. He's been taken away from his family... You know, from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this promise line that we've been tracing now for 30, well, 36, 37 chapters, he's not with those people anymore. He's no longer present with the covenant people of God. He's a foreigner in a foreign land. He's been removed from God's covenant people. He's not where God's word is going to be taught. He's had all the youth group. He's probably 17, 18 at this point. He's had all the youth group He's going to get. He's had all the Sunday school He's going to get. He's had all of the, the worship of the triune God of the Bible He's going to get because where He is, they worship a whole pantheon of God with with Ray ra the sun god, as sort of the, the leader of the bunch. He, he's not where He can worship His God with His people He no longer has God's Word. He's removed from all of that. It was common then to think that gods were regional. That gods were bound by borders much like you and I are. And that when Joseph would cross that border into a foreign land, his God had to stop because he couldn't cross that border. And so now he's under the jurisdiction of, of the sun god and the moon god and the Nile and all these other gods that Egypt had. But that's not what the Bible tells us. He's in a foreign place among foreign religions with foreign people outside of the covenant community. The Lord is with him. God is with Joseph even in those places, even in those dark, difficult, painful places. And verse 2 is written as a cause and effect. God is with him, therefore the things he does succeed. He does well because God is with him. You can't read it the other way around. God is with him because of all the great things he's doing for Potiphar. You can't read that verse that way. God is with him, and so... The things He does succeed. He's a a successful man. In fact, verse 3 is explicit. So you don't even need the, the clarification of verse 2 because in verse 3, the Lord calls all that He did to succeed. Joseph is in Egypt and Yahweh is with him there. And look at Joseph in verse 4. He finds favor in Potiphar's sight. And notice what he does, verse 4. He attended him, or he served him. Joseph is serving Potiphar an unbeliever, a worshiper of false gods, a keeper of a false religion. The. Presumably number two in command in all of Egypt. There's the Pharaoh, and then there's the captain of his army. Clearly, Potiphar has the right, the power, the authority to throw Joseph into the king's prison, into Pharaoh's prison. And yet Joseph serves him. He wanted his master's best. He wanted what was good for. Potiphar, he wanted what was good for his boss. He could have sulked. He could have complained. He could have he could have sort of milled around. I mean, come on, God, I, I deserve better than this. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob—these are my my dad, my granddad, my grandfather, my great grandfather. I mean, come on, God. I, I deserve so much more than this. I'm going to kind of work half-heartedly because this guy's a pagan and I'm not going to work well for a pagan. I, I don't care about his, his, his unbelief. And so I don't, I don't care about him because he's an unbeliever. And so I'm not going to labor for him. I should get special treatment because of who I am, because of my bloodline, because of the special promises to God and His people. Instead, Joseph attended. Joseph served a foreign, unbelieving boss. And he labored hard for Potiphar and gained Potiphar's respect so that the only thing Potiphar kept from Joseph was his wife. In fact, Potiphar had so little to do in his own house because Joseph was so reliable so trustworthy, so diligent, that the only thing Potiphar withheld was his wife. The only thing Potiphar thought about during the day, what 's for supper? What am I going to eat?" That was his biggest concern. He so entrusted Joseph with the work of his house that his only concern is, verse six, what, what am I going to have to eat? Do I I want the lamb or the chicken? That was His greatest work, His greatest decision every single day. Now, let me remind you of something. I want you to think back. We don't have to go this far back, but I want to go this far back. To the first three verses of Genesis 12. Because in Genesis 12, you remember God called Abram Out of Ur, away from his family, away from his people. And he said, now here's what I want you to do, Abram. I want you to pack up and I want you to go somewhere. And when you get there, I'll let you know that you're there. Just start heading and you start walking. And when you get there, I'll let you know where there is. And stop you when you get there. But do you remember the promise he made to Abram? I'll be with you. I will bless you and you in you the nations will be blessed. Joseph is living that promise decades later. Joseph is living God's presence. He's being blessed by God and through him Egypt. Yes, Egypt is is recipient of of blessing. Because they have God's covenant people, well, one of them, there in their midst. Because of Joseph, Abraham's descendant, Abraham's great-grandson, the nation of Egypt is being blessed. Joseph is actually reaping the benefits of God's promises to his great-grandfather. Living out the covenant promises in Egypt. Potiphar is blessed. The nations are being blessed. God is fulfilling His promise to Abraham. Even through Joseph. Potiphar entrusts Joseph. And then in scene 2, Mrs. Potiphar entreats Joseph. Notice Joseph has one problem. Or maybe two, I guess. They sort of go together. The first is his stunning good looks. He's handsome in form and appearance. You know, the exact same phrase described his mother. The exact same phrase is used of Rachel in chapter 29, verse 17. And it's his good looks that get him in trouble. Well, his good looks and Potiphar's loose wife. She only says three words. Lie with me. That's, that's all she ever says to Joseph. Lie with me. She says it later, lie with me. That, that's all she ever says to Joseph. It sounds as though she says them frequently. It's not a one time event, it's not one time interaction. Joseph is handsome, and after some time, Mrs. Potiphar cast her eyes on Joseph and says, "Lie with me," and he refused her. Notice the rationale Joseph gives for avoiding this adulterous affair. He actually gives three reasons uh, there are three in his uh, explanation in his defense in verses 8 and 9. First of all, uh, the first defense is my Master trusts me. He's given me everything, put everything in my charge, except you. He's withheld absolutely nothing from Joseph except his wife. In his own house, even Potiphar isn't greater than Joseph. Even Potiphar is, is no greater than Joseph is in Potiphar's own house. He so entrusts Joseph with everything. You know, there was another time when a master entrusted his people with everything, withheld only one thing, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden and said, it's all yours, except this one tree right here. For them, that was rationale for disobeying God. For them, they looked at that tree and said, well, wait a minute. If He's withholding that from me, it must be pretty good. It must be amazing. It must be, you know what? I deserve that. I've been such a faithful servant all these years, all these days, all these minutes. I don't know how long out of me we in the garden. That, that I deserve the fruit of that one tree that He's told me I can't have. For them, that was that was rationale for taking the fruit. If we can have everything else except there, this one thing, surely I should have this one thing. That's not what Joseph says. Joseph says he's been gracious and generous with all of his stuff except you. I'm going to honor that. I'm going to keep that. I'm going to, to respect my Master enough to keep my hands off of the one thing he's told me I can't have. The first rationale is his master's own trust the second is god's word and the sanctity of marriage notice the phrase because you are his wife that was enough for joseph you're his you're his one flesh covenant partner till death do you part Who am I to stand in the way of that? Who am I to to step and interfere with that covenant vow that you two have made with each other? God has established marriage between one man and one woman and I can't step in and and break that covenant, break that, that relationship. His third argument, his third rationale is the recognition that all sin is cosmic treason. Okay, I, I, I could lie with you, Mrs. Potiphar. I might not get found out. It's possible no one would know. It's possible that you and I could keep that secret forever. And truth is, if anybody does find, find out, who does it really hurt but only Potiphar? Really, I mean, it's really only your husband who suffers the most. That's not what what Joseph says. This sin isn't just against Potiphar. This isn't just a sin against my master. All sin is cosmic treason. All sin is a sin against God. I can't do this wickedness and sin against God, he says verse 9. Imagine the temptation. Nobody would know. I mean, she's literally throwing herself at Him. Begging, pleading, repeatedly. Day in and day out. It would have been so easy to yield, so easy to give in. Truth is, you don't develop the strength and confidence and trust to say no to that in a moment. That's a lifetime of character building that's just showing itself at an opportunity. This isn't something that just in a moment he had this whim. It's not like he's lived the first 17 years of his life however he wants to, gratifying the desires of his flesh, and in this moment, had this one sort of lucid moment and went, no, I'm not going to do it. This is a character. This is a pattern. This is a lifelong cultivation of this high view of God's Word, a high understanding of just what sin is. This is deciding and committing to following God's commands long before you're ever in the difficult situation. And notice verse 10. At the risk of um, being politically incorrect in today's world, notice what verse 10 tells us right at the end. He wouldn't listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. In other words, he stopped being alone in the house with her. It's the Billy Graham rule. That's frowned upon in today's world. Our vice president got in trouble for mentioning some of that rule. You know, I, I knew um, there's a, a guy who uh, was an associate pastor at the church I grew up in. He had a woman on staff with him in the education department. Um, and... Uh, there were times when they would have to go to conferences uh, to be at the same conference. And I've had this very distinct memory of, of talking to, to both of them. Both the pastor that was on, the, on staff and then this woman who um, uh, is, was on staff then at the time uh, in the education department. They drove separate cars from Columbia to Charlotte to go to the exact same conference. Because there was nobody else that could go with them. Had there been a third person, they would have all piled in the same car and gone on their, their merry way. They drove separately the you know, hour it is from Columbia to Charlotte. Joseph wouldn't even be in the same house with them. And in fact, that's part of the implication in verse 11, right? He went into the house to do His work and none of the other men of the house were there in the house. He kind of went, "Uh uh-oh. He quit being alone in the house with her at all. And then in the third scene of this play, the scene sort of slows down and we get a... You know who knows how many days have passed by in verses six through ten because we're told in verse seven, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on him. We know that there was repeated, it were repeated advances over time. Potiphar entrusts Joseph. Mrs. Potiphar entreats Joseph here in the next scene, in the third scene, Mrs. Potiphar entraps Joseph. One day he was in the house to do his work and none of the other servants were there. None of the other men of the house were there and she saw her chance. This time, rather than throwing herself at him, she grabbed him. Grabbed him by his cloak, his coat, his garment, whatever he was wearing, his robe. And again, she said, the only word she knows how to say to Joseph, lie with me. That's all she ever says to him. And instead, Joseph ran If you ever play Bible trivia or you get into all those funny silly Bible jokes, you know the shortest person in the Bible. It's not Zacchaeus, it's Bill the shoe height, right? You see the What's the smallest sin in the Bible? Flea immorality, it's a little tiny flea. I don't think Joseph had read Paul. I don't think Joseph had read the New Testament. But he flees immorality. Paul commands us, flee sexual immorality. And that's exactly what he does here. He's so committed to getting out of the house that that better I'm not even going to turn around and grab my coat. She's got a hold of my garment. I'm running out of the house. I'm not even going to turn around and grab it because who knows what would happen. And he ran off and left it with her. So she grabbed the cloak and and called in the other servants, kind of took the coat out to them, and began to weave a tale. Count the lies in her story. Uh, She told them that he had come in to lie with her. Lie number one. No pun intended, by the way. That he took off his coat. Lie number two. That he was going to force himself on her. Lie number three. Had she not cried out loudly for help. Lie number four. Her story, the story she tells to all the servants, is all wrong. There's nothing about it that's true. I don't know how long it was before Potiphar came home. A couple of hours, a few minutes, most of the day—we don't have any idea. But you get the sense, verse sixteen, that she actually sat there on her bed. I mean, I just sort of picture her sitting on her bed with that cloak beside her, waiting for her husband to come home. Hours, hours. Because I got to tell him the same story. I need the evidence right here beside me. So she could tell the same lie all over again. She entraps Joseph. And then lastly, and I couldn't come up with a good word, Potiphar imprisoned Joseph. You know, this isn't the first time that Joseph has been betrayed by a coat. The first time his coat was dipped in blood and was used to deceive his father into thinking that Joseph was dead. Here, it's used to deceive his master Potiphar into thinking that Joseph had made untoward advances to his wife. I'm not entirely certain. I know the passage says his anger was kindled but it doesn't say he was kindled at Joseph. His anger was kindled. And we have other writings saying that men in similar situations didn't go to prison. They went to death. They were burned. They were killed immediately. You get the sense that Potiphar thinks, Wait, I've got this long track record of trusting Joseph. I can't throw that out for one story besides... I know my wife. You get the sense that there's there's more at work in Potiphar's own mind. And so instead, he throws Joseph in prison. And there in prison, just as in Potiphar's house, Joseph rises to the top of the heap. Potiphar had put him in charge of everything in his house. The jailer now puts him in charge. Nobody works in Egypt. They get Joseph to do it all. Potiphar doesn't have to work. Joseph is his servant. The jailer doesn't have to be a jailer. Joseph's in the room. I don't have to work. I can let Joseph do all my work for me. But notice, yet again, twice, verses 21 and 23, Joseph is in the king's prison in Egypt. Pro- okay, the desert might be worse. I would imagine throwing him out in the middle of the desert with no compass and no water. That would probably be worse than this. I can't imagine a more difficult place than, than Pharaoh's prison in Egypt. Egypt you and i would think Joseph you're doing it wrong there's something you're not there there's something going on this can't possibly be god's will for your life if you just would trust you'd be out of prison and and you would be the pharaoh for that matter maybe you could take his job but twice we're told verse 21 and 23 Oh, by the way, Yahweh is with him even in that pit. Even in prison. Even in jail. He excels there in prison not because He's great, but because Yahweh is with Him. Because God is with Him. Because of God's special presence with Joseph. Let me make three applications from this passage. First, you can't possibly miss the contrast between Joseph and Judah. It's, it's set that way on purpose. Chapter 37 introduces Joseph. It gets us to where Joseph is in Potiphar's house in Egypt and then er, change of direction and all of a sudden you're watching Judah's life for one chapter and then you're suddenly jerked right back to Egypt again. You can't miss the contrast. Joseph, who would withstand sexual temptation thrown at him, versus Judah, who went looking for it. Joseph, who repeatedly, time and time again, refused the advances of this powerful woman, And Judah, who waited a whole week, found the first prostitute on the side of the road and said, Hey, I'm coming to your house. You can't miss the contrast. Will you run from temptation or will you run to it? Will you determine long in advance how you will react in times of struggle? In times of temptation, will you seek the purity for the honor of God's Word and recognize that all sin, even adultery, is an offense against God and not against men only. May God continue to grow us in our hatred for all sin that as cosmic treason. A second application. We've said this before. Let me remind you all over again. God has promised to be with His people wherever, whenever, forever. Joseph is where you and I would think couldn't possibly be the right place. Slave, foreign country, now ending the chapter in prison. Everything about his circumstances says you're doing something wrong. This can't possibly happen. Be right. And yet, God is with Joseph. Whether in prosperity or adversity, joy, sorrow, wealth, poverty, through all of it, God is with Joseph. And you and I in Christ, we have the exact same promise. Christ reminded the disciples of that promise even when He gave them the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations baptizing, teaching, and surely I am with you always. We tend to think that God will deliver us from struggle and pain and sorrow and suffering. Rather, He promises not to deliver us from them, but through them. He doesn't promise to remove them from your life. He promises to be with you even in the midst of them. Or we could say it this way, you can't always read God's providence when you're in the middle of it. You can't read God's providence when you're walking in it. We would look at Joseph's surroundings and go, prison, foreign country, this isn't what God wants for me. Modern Western evangelicalism would tell you that that's not right. That something's wrong with him. And yet, we know. We learn in a few chapters. So for us, a few weeks. Joseph will learn in a few years. God's been orchestrating this whole thing. God sold him into slavery. God got him into Potiphar's house. God got him into Egypt. Why? Because that's exactly where God needs him to be in order to deliver His people Years down the road, you say, But well, I'm walking through struggle. I'm walking through adversity. God doesn't want me here. He just might. Because then He can use you when others walk through the same struggle, the same adversity. A last, final application. Your Savior was mistreated. Betrayed, falsely accused, suffered, bled, died for things He never did, but for things that you and I have done. Do I need to remind you that Jesus was mistreated all according to the Father's plan to carry out the Father's purpose in redeeming our people. All so that Jesus could accomplish the deliverance of God's people. Do I I need to remind you that, that just as innocent Joseph was thrown into prison, so too innocent Jesus was punished for sins He didn't commit. Joseph is in place by God's design to deliver Israel from destruction. And that's exactly what Christ has done. Suffered, bled, died, falsely accused, all so that He can deliver us from destruction. Deliver us from eternal death. Deliver us from eternal torment. Eternal, eternal punishment for our cosmic treason. In Him and in Him alone, there is deliverance. So run to Christ for your hope and comfort. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, would You strengthen us to live by faith and not by sight? To hold more dearly to Your commandments, to the life that is yet unseen, the world that is yet unseen, than we do to the things of this world. May we hold more tightly to Your glory, Your honor, Your pleasure, than to our own pleasure. May we seek in every circumstance to run from sexual immorality, to run from sin, to withstand temptation, that You would, by Your grace, give us the grace and strength to do just that. You tell us that no temptation has come to man except that which is common to us. We don't face temptation that's, that's more unusual than anyone else. But You've given us a way out. May we run to Christ rather than to sin. May we run to Christ as we endure struggle and hardship and difficulty in this life, recognizing that He may not deliver us from it, but He will deliver us through it. And at the end of that path, the other end of that road, is eternal glory with Christ. Prepare us for that feast, even as we come to this small taste of it. Through Christ we pray. Amen.